Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Senator Graham, you are connected. Hello. 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 Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. Good day, Mr. Senator. Well, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I uh, met with the president. I spent the weekend with him, and we played golf yesterday and had dinner uh, over the weekend, and we talked uh, about our friends in Turkey, and I told him I uh, my desire was to change the conversation. and That was Senator Lindsey Graham, and I'm your guest host, Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland this week, who has a cold. We've got a jam-packed episode for you this week. We've got high-stakes prank calls, the latest on impeachment, and also a guide to what to watch out for in Tuesday's Democratic debate. First, we have national security reporter Natasha Bertrand, who's here to tell us about a prank call that Senator Lindsey Graham received. Uh, well, thank I really you. appreciate you calling me. Thank you for calling me. Me too. Thank you for taking the time to have such an important conversation. Yes, uh, I want to make this a win-win if we can. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, Natasha. Thanks for I, being here. Hi. Natasha, you've got this amazing scoop today about this prank phone call that South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham got. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so Lindsey Graham received a phone call from two kind of notorious Russian pranksters who go by Lexus and Vovon, and they've pranked high-profile politicians, Western politicians, before. Lindsey Graham is certainly not the first that they've targeted. But they called him pretending to be the Turkish defense minister in August. And Lindsey carried on a lengthy conversation with one of them, who he believed was the defense minister, discussing mostly the Russian sale of a missile system to Turkey that the U.S. really did not want Turkey to move forward with. Yeah, I, I, you know, Mr. Minister, I just I'm trying to be as helpful as I know how to be. If the 400 system gets activated, it will be impossible to stop the sanctions, and it'd be impossible to have a free trade agreement. So what I'm trying to do is find a way to help Turkey with the dilemma with the S-400. See if we can work through this problem and change the conversation from an area of disagreement to an area of agreement, which is a free trade agreement. So it raises, obviously, some serious national security concerns. And and this is basically a very high-stakes equivalent of, of prank calls that people made when they were kids, including myself, I have to admit. Like, like when you're a kid saying, you know, is your refrigerator running? And, and there's a, obviously a, a history here of, of prank calls and, and highly placed government officials, whether it's uh, Stuttering John, the, the radio shock jock, uh, pranking Donald Trump in a call to the White House, or whether George Bush being uh, pranked with uh, a comment about the imaginary prime minister Putin of Canada. Uh, but in this case, it's, it's not just absurd, it's also really disturbing because these pranksters convinced Graham to disclose his position on the U.S.-Turkey relationship. And uh, I think the answer was, was to me, 
really troubling in some ways. So can you outline for us why, why is what we learned from this prank call so significant? Yeah, well, it's newly significant in light of recent events. Um, the president obviously issued this surprise announcement late Sunday night saying that he was going to be pulling all U.S. troops out of northern Syria, which would effectively be abandoning our allies, the Kurds, to a Turkish onslaught in northern Syria. And what this phone call between Lindsey Graham and these pranksters back in August revealed was that privately, Lindsey Graham was saying that he recognized that our allies, the Kurds, the YPG in northern Syria were a big threat to Turkey and were a big problem and that the president and Senator Graham both sympathized with Turkey's desire to essentially neutralize that threat. Fast forward to this week and Lindsey Graham has publicly anyway been saying that Trump's policies have abandoned the Kurds and seems to be completely contradicting what he thought he was saying privately to Turkey's defense minister. And I don't know what to tell you other than I am doing all I know to do. And President Trump is very sympathetic to the situation of President Erdogan, but the Congress is not sympathetic. The Congress, Democrats are not sympathetic at all. And we've got we've lost some Republicans here when it comes to Turkey. And it's significant because the Turks seem caught off guard by the president and by Lindsey Graham's charge against them. They have said that prior to this conversation with the president about withdrawing from northern Syria and about them going in and attacking the Kurds, the president and his allies knew exactly what was going to happen. So this conversation about, what, two months ago now kind of reveals that behind closed doors anyway, these conversations about sympathizing with Turkey, wanting to work with Turkey, feeling like, like, you know, the Kurds were essentially going to be thrown under the bus by the U.S. is what they were communicating. And there's a whole other aspect of this also, which is at the end of the second phone call, because there were two phone calls, um, Lindsey Graham randomly kind of brings up this case in the U.S. having to do with a Turkish gold trader and a Turkish and Turkish bank officers that he says the president is very personally interested in. But he was very keen on the bank case, you know, the, the one involving the Turkish bank. And, and he, he does not want that case to hurt our relationship. Mm-hmm. So Bloomberg reported just last night that the president had actually pressured his secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, to get involved in that case. So what seemed to be happening was Lindsey Graham was offering President Trump's involvement in this case that Erdogan, the president of Turkey, really wanted to see eliminated, really, in the U.S. and dropped in exchange for Turkey not moving forward with this missile defense purchase from Russia and in exchange for them essentially being more cooperative with NATO. Who knew a prank call could have so many disturbing dimensions to it? Uh, but but can we back up for one second? Can you tell us a little bit about how how you got the tip? How did you get the transcript of the call? Walk us through how, how it went down. Yeah, so we got these recordings directly from the pranksters. And it's funny, I was connected with them by a former source of mine who was the leader of a secessionist movement in California, (laughs) who then moved to Russia after his secessionist movement kind of failed and has been in contact with all sorts of Russian figures and players ever since. And these Russian journalists happen to be very famous in Russia because they are very good at pranking Western politicians and people in Russia love seeing Westerners duped. So he connected me with these guys because the pranksters wanted more publicity, essentially. They wanted more 
you know, they wanted the world to know that they were doing this and that that Western leaders were essentially falling for it. And they reached out and said, hey, are you interested in this? And about a month ago, we weren't. Um, We did not. We were focused on reporting out our Turnberry story. And we didn't have the peg and the news hook really to go forward with a story that has to do with Lindsey Graham, Turkey and Syria. Now, of course, given the week's recent developments, we do. My God, we're so far down the rabbit hole. So so let me uh, belabor the point because I'm just kind of fascinated about this. What is your f- first reaction when you see this in your what in your email box, right? Like what's your f- first initial reaction? At first I was shocked that Senator Graham, who is typically pretty savvy about all of this stuff, especially when it comes to foreign policy and national security, fell for this and that he – had these extensive conversations with someone whose identity he clearly hadn't even verified, especially because he's such a close ally to the president and because he really has the president's ear on all of these major issues. You would think that he might be a little more cautious in determining who he speaks to. Um, but then I also realized that this isn't totally unprecedented because, again, other world leaders, including Boris Johnson, for example, the prime minister of the UK right now, has also been pranked by these same people. So it struck me as credible and listened to it, thought it was really kind of bizarre that Lindsey Graham was undermining the Kurds, who he now has rushed to defend, and didn't really understand at the time the significance of that comment he made about the Turkish bank case um, until this week when it was revealed that that is a very high personal interest to both President Trump and the president of Turkey. Okay, so you know you have a, a pretty good story on your hands. Then what's the next step uh, for, for people that don't work in journalism? What do you do next? Who do you call? And what's that conversation like? Yeah, so I, I flagged it for uh, my editor and editor listened to it and said, wow, this seems to be a really big story. Not only that Lindsey Graham seems to have been um, compromised here by two Russian pranksters, but also the fact that he was revealing all sorts of information about his feelings towards Turkey and the U.S. policies towards Turkey and the Kurds. And from then, we went to Senator Graham's office and we asked them to comment on this. And we asked them to confirm the authenticity of the recordings, which to our ears seem very, very difficult to fake. And we don't believe that they are fake. And Senator Graham's office did not respond and that seems to be kind of the MO in this in this era is they don't respond. They wait until we publish and then they accuse it of being fake news. I know it so well in the uh, politics section. <laughs> so I should note to our listeners that uh, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. If you want to know more about it, if you want to read the story, uh, I would encourage you to uh, come to our site, uh, politico.com, and t- check out Natasha Bertrand's story on this tape. So, Natasha, one last question. Can you uh, – explain to, to our listeners, like, why is this such a big deal? Like, what is the, what is the crux of this? What's at the heart of, of the matter? What's their takeaway? What, what should it be for, for people that are listening and aren't that familiar with this? Yeah. So I think people should be aware that their elected officials are potentially being duped by bad actors and that this can really raise questions about serious security breaches. These pranksters seem to have not had bad intentions and seem to have been relatively harmless. I think their intention was just to see if they could get a sitting U.S. senator on the phone and able to dish about his feelings towards U.S.-Turkish policy or whatever and see what they could get. But it might not be these pranksters in the future. It might be 
you know, people who are actually trying to get sensitive information out of these elected officials and leaders for their own nefarious purposes. So I think that's one big takeaway. The other big takeaway is that obviously a lot of what public leaders say in public is not what they're saying behind closed doors. Um, And I think this really demonstrates that for someone who has really led the charge against, you know, so-called fake news and Democrats, especially Congressman Adam Schiff, um, being duped by the same pranksters about a year ago. It just seems like a really big lapse um, to not verify these people's identities before he was discussing sensitive policies with them. So I think that's The two big takeaways here, I think, are the discrepancy between what happens publicly and behind closed doors in these conversations with world leaders, especially during sensitive diplomatic negotiations when you're kind of trying to appease these world leaders, and also, obviously, the security implications of it. Okay, good. Well, you tell him that I will will try to get President Trump uh, set up a phone call between the two presidents informally, off the record, not public. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Okay. Thank so you. You you can do all things for me. Yes, sir. Okay. I will. I will go through you. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Senator. Have a great day. Bye. Well, I know uh, this is an incredibly busy time for you. Uh, thank you so much for taking out all this time uh, to talk to us about this. Thank you so much. This prank call, this turkey fiasco. It risks fracturing Trump's support in Congress just when he needs it most. Here to break it down for us is White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hey, Nancy. So awesome to have you back here at NerdCast. Thanks. Happy to be here. Nancy, last week on NerdCast, you said that the White House's legal strategy was basically just a strategy of one, Donald Trump. Is that still true? It mostly is. I would say that uh, there was a a new pretty large twist that happened this week, which is that uh, the White House uh, counsel, which is the top attorney in the White House, sent this letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And it was a pretty pivotal moment for the White House in the impeachment proceedings because basically what it did is it said that the White House wasn't going to cooperate at all with the House inquiry. And that is a real difference than – really different than what they had been talking about with congressional investigations before. They had been stonewalling witnesses from testifying, for instance, but they had been cooperating in, in some you know, casual ways, at least engaging with some of the committee chairs and producing some documents. This was this letter. It was an eight-page letter signed by the top White House attorney, and it just said, we are not cooperating with any of you, period. And there were sort of two parts of the letter. The first part was really, really political, and lawyers that I talked to said it's like not a legal argument at all, but it's a political one, and it said – Look, Democrats have been trying to, um, you know, upend the Trump presidency since 2016, and this is just the latest instance of it, and therefore should be ignored. And that it also contended that the White House basically uh, wasn't given a fair shake and wasn't able to look at testimony or transcripts or things like that. And until they had more due process, as they called it, um, they weren't going to participate. And so it just. Um, The president had been taking a very aggressive stand sort of out there on his own through his Twitter feed and his public comments. Now he's backed up by the White House lawyers um, and and it's just I think shows uh, how partisan this is going to be and how much of a clash uh, we're setting up to have between the White House and the executive branch and Congress. So it seemed to me that the the dial moved in a subtle but very material way, meaning it turned to outright 
uh, obstruction. Is, is, is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. And I think even the White House would say that. Um, you know, I just I think they're not going to play ball at all. Um, the president was asked yesterday, I was at the White House, he had an event in the Roosevelt Room where he was signing some executive orders. And he was asked, well, if the House did agree to some of your demands um, about this due process uh, issue, and, uh, you know, if they did, if the House did hold a formal impeachment vote, which the Republicans want them to do, would you cooperate? And he said, you know, yes. So that's sort of a key thing to keep in mind, a key marker. I don't really know if he would participate. But yes, it really did notch it up uh, quite a bit this week with the White House just saying we're not playing ball at all. The White House at this point is digging in its heels. The White House, for its part uh, tonight, making it clear they have no intention of playing nice. On the White House issuing a new declaration of defiance against impeachment investigators. So one Italian anecdote to me about how the White House feels about uh, the Democrats' inquiry is I was at the White House earlier this week and I was talking with an official about you know, how it was going and were they going to comply with the Democrats' request. And this official looked at me totally straight face and said, look, we give zero fucks about these subpoenas. And I think that that's just really telling. I think that they are not welcoming the Democrats' inquiry. They're not going to cooperate. And they have sort of a laissez-faire attitude, like, you know, FU attitude about it. You know, we're just not playing along. And so what about Republicans uh, on Capitol Hill? Is there mounting pressure for on the White House to, to change their tactics or to uh, concede on some points or wh- where do they stand on all this? Well, that's a good question. So I think that um, the White House is getting a lot of pressure from Republicans on the Hill and also from conservative leaders who feel like there is no strategy. There is no talking points. There is not a war room. Uh, there is no – they're not – the White House is not helping them respond at all. And so there's a lot of frustration. Um, our colleague Burgess Everett uh, today was just talking about how some senators appear to have settled on the strategy of saying that what Trump said in the call, phone call with the Ukrainian president where he asked for help investigating Joe Biden's son, that that was wrong, but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. But I think that, you know – Republicans uh, have been really struggling with this. And it's interesting because Trump has so effectively co-opted the party and, and led them down this path on, on policy issues, on politics. But so they're looking to him and his White House now for help in how to navigate this and they're not getting it. What's remarkable in, in your answer and also in your reporting recently is that the one thing that's that's totally missing from Capitol Hill, you're only talking their, – their response is only strategic. Where are the talking points? Uh, where's the strategy? How are you organized around this? Not a, Is no one talking in the Republican side about the constitutional dimensions here? That's a great question too. So they are they are trying to avoid that at all costs. And I talked with one Trump uh, outside advisor yesterday who basically said, you know, this due process argument that the White House lawyers put forth in this letter is great because it's going to allow the Senate Republicans, if there's an impeachment trial, it's going to allow them to say, we're not even going to get into the merits of the phone call. This whole thing was a charade. And so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to set up a situation where they can dismiss it as political theater over some like nitty gritty process stuff. Um, But you know, not get into it. And it's interesting because nobody in the White House um, even sort of dismisses the idea of what Trump said in the phone call. They don't dismiss what the whistleblower said in the complaint. Like 
the idea that um, you know a for that the president asked a foreign leader to interfere in the election. No one is arguing that. They're just trying to change the subject and pivot away to what Joe Biden did or this argument of due process or to undermine the credibility of the whistleblower and paint this person as a Democrat partisan hack. But people aren't really sort of getting at the underlying issue. And I think that that's a key part of the Trump playbook, right? Like Democrats have this really easy story to tell where Trump asked a foreign leader to interfere that is a national security issue. It's a constitutional issue. Um, and, you know, Republicans, uh, you know, Trump is really trying to set the terms of the story instead and say, well, it's not about that. It's about the deep state and about due process and these other things. And so it's sort of a an argument at this point, even for like the contours of the story. Does this drip drip of stories and, and everybody here understands and knows as just as our newsroom is doing, every newsroom in every big paper, every big media newsroom is chasing this story, trying to understand, uh, trying to peel back layers of the onion, better understand what, what what happened and what role the administration played. Does this drip drip of stories, does it change anything? What do the next few weeks look like? Or, or are we just going to be caught in this morass, in this quicksand and, and without the dynamics ever changing? Like what do the next two weeks look like? Yeah, I think the risk uh, for Democrats is that the story becomes so detailed um, that people lose track of of what actually happened. You know, you can go down the rabbit hole of like this State Department and this ambassador testified and it's hard for Americans who have jobs and families and hobbies to kind of keep all the characters straight and to keep straight what actually happened and what's the news. And so I think that's the risk for Democrats to kind of keep it straight on. And then I think um, – the other thing that I'll really be watching is what does the polling look like? It has been remarkable to see how uh, the impeachment, the, the public perception of the impeachment inquiry has changed just in two weeks. You know, the majority of Americans now support impeachment. Uh, Trump has really seen um, his numbers in terms of the support for impeachment fall. Um, women are supporting impeachment and more independence. And those are people that Trump needs to win 2020. And so I will just be watching over the next two weeks, how does public sentiment uh, shift because I think that Republicans on the Hill are really attuned to that. And right now they're saying, you know, it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. But I'll be curious to say to see how that changes and if it changes, if the poll never sh- number shift on Republicans, uh, independents, women. These are these are things that people are watching with 2020 in, in their minds. Uh, Nancy, thank you so much for taking out all this time to uh, walk our listeners through all this. Thanks for having me. So let's transition from uh, impeachment and the other affairs. On Tuesday, we have another Democratic debate, and it's going to be the most crowded debate stage yet. Holly Otterbein and Daniel Strauss are going to help break down what we think might happen and why this debate might actually be the most interesting one to watch to date. Welcome to NerdCast. Hi, Daniel. Hey. Holly, are you in Philadelphia? I am. What a city, isn't it? It's the best in the world. I totally agree with you. We got to talk Eagles later. Philly natives. Well, let me, let, let's put the Eagles aside for a second, uh, Holly, and let me start with you. I'm going to ask a very cynical question, okay? Can you make a convincing argument to me for why this next Democratic debate isn't going to be a boring snooze-a-thon marked by annoying canned lines and Joe Biden making ancient cultural references that not even my grandparents can understand? 
You know what? I can. I actually think it might be one of the more interesting debates that we've had. Um, So you've got a couple different things going on. Elizabeth Warren is now firmly a co-front runner with Joe Biden. And so I think it's much more likely that you will have incoming her way, potentially from Tulsi Gabbard, who did this to Kamala Harris um, and took her on on her prosecutorial record. So you've got that. Joe Biden could be asked about his son Hunter's business dealings. I think it'll be fascinating to see how he responds to that. I think that would probably happen from uh, one of the moderators as opposed to one of his opponents. Then Bernie Sanders just experienced, as everyone knows, a heart attack. Um, And so I think we'll be looking to see if he has the energy, if he's the same old Bernie. Um, Tom Steyer is going to be on stage for the first time, and I think that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are probably very pleased with that. He's a very wealthy uh, philanthropist and Democratic donor, and so you know he kind of fits the boogeyman that they like to dunk on. And so I think that'll be that'll be interesting to watch as well. And and again, the big question or one of the big questions for me is, what does Tulsi do? Well, that's certainly a great point. I mean, that this this debate is going to be another packed stage, actually more packed than at any other time uh, in the previous debates because they're allowing 12 people on stage this time. Um, but Daniel, Holly raises a really good point, and this is one I'm super fascinated by. You wrote a story last week about Tulsi Gabbard's return to the stage for the debate. And uh, if I had to sort of distill it to its essence, it was that Tulsi Gabbard is like the unexploded ordinance in the debate hall. Can you explain a little bit about why people are wondering what's up with Tulsi Gabbard and what kind of role she might play in this debate? On the surface, it wouldn't. it's sort of surprising that there's any attention being paid to Gabbard at all. She polls near the low end of the Democratic primary field. Uh, she has not raised a remarkable amount of money, and she really doesn't command an influential part of the Democratic Party. Oh, can I, can I interrupt you uh, for just a quick second? Tell people who uh, Tulsi Gabbard oh, is. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. That, that underscores my point. Uh, <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard is a congresswoman from Hawaii. And for years uh, prior to running for president, she was seen as sort of a very – promising rising star within the Democratic Party. Uh, There was a lot of curiosity among the highest echelons of Democratic leadership about where she would go and what she would do. In 2016, though, she sort of uh, took a detour on her trajectory as sort of an establishment figure when she left her post as a vice chair of the Democratic National Committee to endorse Bernie Sanders. And that really enraged some Democrats. Uh, what? But but Gabbard became a a prominent surrogate for Sanders and one of the few Congress people to endorse him and support him throughout the primary. And then she ran for president. Um, there was a lot of speculation prior to that that she would run someday. I was a little surprised that she ran uh, – even though she knew that Bernie Sanders was going to run again. And her her run has been somewhat unremarkable, except in debates. Um, in the two debates she's been in, she's successfully uh, uh, kneecapped candidates. Uh, the first time, it was with Congressman Tim Ryan over foreign policy. The reality of it is, if the United States isn't engaged, the Taliban will grow, and they will have bigger bolder terrorist acts. 
We have got to have some present there. As, the as, the as Taliban was there long before we came in. They yeah, and they were long yeah, before we exactly. leave. Well, we cannot they were. keep U.S. And they were deployed to Afghanistan, thinking that we're going to somehow. Which was, it was only really surprising because usually when you have low polling candidates fight each other, uh, it's just sort of a blip on the radar. But this was so tense, and uh, Gabbard proved so adept that it was notable to observers like us. When we weren't in there, they started flying planes into our buildings. So I'm just saying right now, the we Taliban have an obli- didn't attack us on the, 9-11. Al Qaeda did. Well, I understand. Al Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. I, I understand. That's why I and so I many other people joined the military to go after And then the second time was uh, after Kamala Harris. And these were attacks over her record as a prosecutor. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president. But I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. What was surprising about this was that Harris should have been prepared for this. You go on Twitter, you look at sort of the the parts of Twitter where liberal activists are talking and dunking on Harris. It was the attacks that uh, Gabbard lobbed at Harris. Freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she but fought- Harris was surprised by it. And I talked to a, a Senate chief of staff after that who, who basically said, how did uh, Gabbard's team find this? The truth was they just had to go on Twitter once. But the big question is, why wasn't Harris prepared for that attack. But uh, let me ask you about Tulsi's incentives. Why would Tulsi Gabbard be incentivized to go after her? I mean, this highlights exactly why any low-polling low candidate is incentivized to go after a higher-polling candidate, because it gets them attention. It gets them name recognition. It reminds the country that they are on the stage. And if you look at sort of search results after the last debate where she went after Harris, it was Gabbard all over the country. Why Congresswoman Gabbard was the most Googled candidate. Uh, it will, if she goes after someone and successfully surprises them in this next debate, her, her uh, fundraising will go up, her name recognition will go up, and she may have a chance of making, making the next debate. It's still a tough road for her to uh, how, but like it's possible. Of how our indicators of electoral success have moved from votes to now search results and 2020, man. <laughs> mentions on Twitter. Hey, Holly, uh, let me ask you uh, about uh, Kamala since we're, we're talking about Kamala Harris. Uh, as many people remember, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker uh, both uh, attracted a lot of attention for their uh, hits on Joe Biden. It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. Kamala Harris especially with that knockout punch. You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. It really caught Biden off guard. You have been invoked. We are going to give you a chance to respond. Vice President Biden. It's a mischaracterization of my position across the board. I did not praise racist. That is not true. 
Number one, number two. And I think uh, had him stumbling for weeks afterwards. He looked so bad in that debate. But Kamala Harris hasn't really gone anywhere after that. And Booker has sort of toned it down a little bit against uh, Uncle Joe in these debates. And so both of them, do you anticipate that they would go back at Joe Biden now because of the Ukraine scandal? Or is that something that's just off limits for other Democratic candidates now? I would be surprised if any of his rivals on stage went after um, the the Hunter Biden situation. Uh, you know, when you even look at Bernie Sanders, who has been one of the top critics of Joe Biden, he was asked a couple weeks ago when he was in Iowa about the situation and given an opportunity multiple times by journalists to basically lay into Hunter Biden's business dealings, and he declined. Um so I think that for a lot of Democrats, it's going to be seen as off limits. And in fact, even some of the Democrats, including Kamala Harris, have said, you know, um, don't mess with Joe, essentially. No, I've said time and time again uh, that this is unacceptable, that if you come after Joe Biden, you're going to have to deal with me in this case. Uh, there's no, as you said, they've shown solidarity with him. So I think uh, if if that uh, line of questioning or criticism is going to come from anywhere, it's most likely going to come from the moderators. And and I think it'll be very interesting to see how Biden handles it, because thus far, there's been a lot of criticism within political circles about how he's handled um, the Hunter Biden situation, impeachment and, and President Trump's um, uh, critiques um, lobbed at him. Uh, a lot of people feel as though he hasn't been aggressive enough. Um, he hasn't, you know, used the opportunity to make it kind of this two-man race that he's been he's been trying to make the, the primary this whole time, trying to make it, you know, just about him and, and Donald Trump. And he has not, in, you know, in a lot of people's views, really, really taken advantage of that. Holly, I'm convinced that um, Biden gets a Hunter Biden question. Uh, and it, but it's going to come from a moderator. I, my theory is that no other Democrat would dare uh, hit him on this because it would only alienate other Democratic primary voters who uh, believe that he's being unfairly maligned by the president. So to me, the question has to be asked by a moderator. And I think it's going to be a different one than he's gotten before. I think it has to be something speaking to the appearances of the conflict of interest with Hunter. So Am I totally full of it and way off base or do you expect it to go down something like that? I mean, how, how would that play out in the debate context? I think that's most likely. And if any any of his rivals were to go there, it would be someone who could gain from, you know, being seen as anti-establishment. And that's why I talked about Bernie Sanders, right? Is he is one of the candidates that you can kind of see maybe, you know, he would he would upset much of the Democratic base, but perhaps part of, um, you know, potential voters out there would like that he was criticizing Biden um, on that. So if it came from anyone, it would be a Bernie Sanders, a Tulsi Gabbard, an Andrew Yang, people um, who are running as anti-establishment figures. But even for them, I do think that it just it carries an immense risk. And so far, it's been a risk that um, Bernie Sanders has has been unwilling to take. Um, so I think you're right. That's that's probably the most likely way that it would go down is is from a um, is a from a moderator. Daniel, did you catch how smooth Holly was with that answer? She caught me referring to the Ukraine scandal, and she smoothly transitioned to the Hunter Biden situation. Nice catch. That's why you're such a good elite reporter. I can learn from you, Holly. <laughs> it's so good. Aww. Damn. Okay, Holly, let me ask you one last question then. On um, How about Bernie Sanders? I mean, you, you cover Bernie Sanders for us, and 
Um, talk, can you talk about his health? Uh, how serious was was this heart attack? What does it mean for him? Uh, what, is, what are the next few weeks look like? How does this impact his his chances of, of winning the nomination? Yeah. So last week um, on Wednesday, his campaign announced that he had had chest pains the night before and had been admitted to the hospital and had two stents inserted um, to address a blockage in one of his arteries. And that in and of itself is a pretty common procedure. And we talked to cardiologists afterward and they said, you know, this isn't really that big of a deal. And, you know, people can get pretty quickly back to work. Um, it's something that a lot of folks go through. And actually afterward, you can feel much better because you don't have that blockage in your heart that you had before. And so at first, it didn't seem like, you know, that huge of a deal, um, at least medically, you know, when it comes to optics, that's different. Well, then on Friday, the campaign announced in the evening that he had actually, in fact, had a heart attack. Breaking news, the Sanders campaign confirming the 2020 contender suffered a heart attack earlier this week. Now, and there are still some unanswered questions. Um, they have not said how severe of a heart attack it was. If it's a mild heart attack, that means something very different than if it was more serious. You can you can have a mild heart attack and um, and in some cases not even know it if it's if it's extremely mild. Um, doctors have told us, and so we don't know that. Um, they also haven't allowed reporters to interview his doctors. Um, so we we don't know some things about how serious it is. Um, but I think that, you know, his aides and his surrogates are telling us that he's back to work already, um, that, you know, it's business as usual. They released a policy plan this week. And and another thing that his team has been telling us is that he's going to show that he has the energy to do this and that he's, you know, OK um, by showing his you know energy on the debate stage. So that means a lot is riding on this debate for him. Um, in general, Sanders is a pretty steady debater. You know, he usually doesn't have moments like Kamala had when she took on Biden and, you know, was the story of the night, but he usually doesn't bomb either. Um, so I think what people will be looking for is, you know, is, is he the same old Bernie, right? Does he have the same passion? Um, you know, is he, is he the Bernie that America has gotten to know over the last few years? And I think both voters and the media are going to be scrutinizing that just intensely. And there's obviously a good chance that he will get a question about his health as well. Um, and, you know, what What this does in general is it, it brings attention to his age and health. And even though he is the oldest candidate in the race, up until now, he's really been able to avoid a lot of those questions. I think partly because Joe Biden is in the primary. Um, and, and a lot of those questions about age, about mental fitness have been directed oh, toward well. him. Let's go ahead, Joe Biden and the age card, like it or not, fair or not, his mental stamina center stage will tell you today. As the Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden responds to some blistering questions from The Washington Post's Jonathan Capehart, who asked about his age and mental state. Does he have the vitality to be president? Strong. Joe Intellect. has no energy. Joe, his own team knows that any second he's going to say another dumb thing, and he will. Reporters, political insiders, you know, would just say, yeah, Bernie is 78, but he seems fine. Like, on the stump, he has energy. He, he has a completely relentless campaign schedule, um, and he just does not he does not seem any older really than he was, you know, the last time he ran for president. Um, and now I think that, you know, the the problem for Sanders right now is that's going to change. It's, I mean, I think there's just going to be a ton of attention um, 
in the next few weeks and, and perhaps more than that on his age and on his health. I have to admit, Holly, I'll be one of those people who will be closely scrutinizing. You know why? Because you know how much he's going to hate that. I, I got to say, though, guys, in the la- like I remember covering Sanders in 2016 and it was impressive how spry he was and how how relentless, as Holly said, he was on the campaign trail outpacing younger candidates. I mean, there have been plenty of presidential candidates who have said it is too hard and exhausting and Sanders has just done it. And for the most part, he's done it well this cycle as well. We've seen the same with uh, Donald Trump. These are 70-year-olds who are proving that age might be just a number on the campaign trail, at least, until now. I was just going to say his campaign schedule has been totally nuts. It's it's been tiring to follow him around the early states, to be totally honest with you. And that's how he's been able to avoid it. Um, Oh, no, Holly, you were out on the trail too much, having too much fun. (laughs) Okay, so we're running out of time. Let me ask you each one last question. This will be sort of like the lightning round part of, uh, of Nerdcast. So if you had a debate bingo card, like tell our listeners one thing to watch for or one thing uh, you think is going to happen that's going to be notable or uh, just uh, that could have a material effect. Tulsi is attacked for uh, coming late to support impeachment proceedings. She only recently switched from this is a bad idea to she supports it. Holly, how about you? Hmm. Um, I'm just tempted to also say something Tulsi, but Tulsi attacks Elizabeth Warren on foreign policy, which is something she's hinted at specifically um, in, in an interview with the uh, Hill. And she... This has also been something um, Warren's foreign policy that folks on the left in, you know, on Twitter and and leftist publications have been attacking Warren for more increasingly. And it's something that um, I think does distinguish her and Bernie Sanders a little bit, but he hasn't brought up. So I wonder if Tulsi is going to kind of go there for uh, for team left. Gabbard does seem disinterested in attacking Bernie for multiple reasons. But like you said, Holly, like it's a it's surprising to me that she would even hint at going after Warren because that is generally the region of the Democratic electorate that she's trying to win over first. He's a very strange Great. politician in many ways. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both for taking out all this time and for coming back to Nerdcast this week. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's always really fun. A big thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Come back next Wednesday for a special post-debate episode hosted by me, Charlie Matessian. Next Friday, Scott will be back in the catbird seat with a new episode of Nerdcast. Our producer this week is Annie Reese. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. And our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks so much, and we'll talk next week.